and welcome to the Tennessee World Affairs Council International Career Panel for April 2023. Uh, we are pleased to welcome you here for what will be a very interesting conversation with specialists from a variety of fields uh, working in uh, international affairs, uh, global issues, uh, both here and abroad, and to share with you uh, their experiences and, and how you can get uh, involved if you're interested in any of these fields and also some good advice about preparing for uh, work in uh, the workforce in general and uh, specifically uh, in global affairs uh, opportunities. Uh, we do these uh, programs a couple times a year and uh, this month in uh, April uh, we will be uh, having a, a special episode of the career panel uh, titled Women in International Security. Uh, that will be on April 19th, uh, same time, 1130. You can register at tnwac.org. Uh, we look forward to having a, a very uh, special panel uh, for that uh, uh, iteration of the career panel as well. And if you're interested in uh, national security issues, whether it's think tanks, military intelligence, civilian occupations in the intelligence community, then that uh, program is for you. Uh, let me also mention that the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a membership organization. We encourage students to uh, to become members, also to make sure you're signed up for our newsletter so you get our weekly quiz, you get program information, and a lot of other things on international affairs that may be of uh, interest to you. Uh, let me uh, introduce our moderator who will uh, take uh, the show from there, and uh, uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy these presentations. Uh, today, uh, moderating the program is uh, Dr. Gretchen Meisler. She is the Vice Provost for International Affairs at the University of Tennessee, uh, Knoxville. She's also a uh, member of the Board of Directors of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and uh, her bio uh, and all the complete bios of our panel are on our website, the landing page for this program at tnwac.org, and you can look under the calendars. So with no further ado, let me uh, hand over uh, responsibilities for running the program uh, to Gretchen, and we uh, look forward to uh, hearing our, our panelists uh, talk about uh, their experiences in international affairs. Thanks again. Gretchen, over to you. Thanks, Pat. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here uh, this morning and to be able to present present in just a few moments our panelists. Um, and I totally agree with you. It will be a, a very interesting discussion and hopefully very productive for the participants joining us today um, who may be in the throes of making major career decisions. I just wanna say a little something about the significance of the partnership between the University of Tennessee and the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, this is a very unique collaboration, uh, one that the university is, is quite proud and honored to be a part of. Um, my ability to participate as a board member with the World Affairs Council um, is in direct relevance with the vision that we have here on campus. Um, and really at the heart of what we are doing um, in terms of global learning for our students and their opportunity to reflect on their global citizenship. So it's a pleasure to be able to join these activities and also to be a part of the groups that are thinking about what are relevant programs that we need to be um, working with and, and bringing to the community. 
I also want to say a little contextual uh, comment around framing our discussion today. Um, the reason why this collection of experts are with us is really because what we're seeing in higher education as we're looking at the type of skills, both technical and non-technical skills that students need, what we find is it's, it is something that we, we cannot keep um, our sort of keep pace with. So what I mean is, is that the world is changing very fast. And what we find with graduates and with employers moving um, in future employees into the marketplace is that we need to now think about how we are educating, training, and offering space for these future leaders to be thinking about what they will bring into the world and how they are going to think about problem solving in a landscape that is very different than any of us on this screen um, grew up with or now have faced professionally. We often say here on our campus that we are in the business of getting students and graduates and alumni ready for jobs that do not yet exist. And that comes along with a very sort of specialized set of skills that one is nimble, agile, and is able to think about problem solving from a holistic perspective. So I hope that sort of um, provides some context for us to have our conversation today. Um, as Pat mentioned, the bios, the full bios of all of our panelists are listed on the Tennessee World Affairs website. But as, in, as I introduce them, I do wanna say a few things about them because I think it will help our participants really understand where their perspectives and their framing is coming from as we move through um, our questions. So first, I would like to introduce Terrence Fluker. Terrence became the Tennessee Regional Recruiter for the US Peace Corps in December of 2022. He brings a media background and over 30 years in radio management and programming to the position. In more than 60 countries, Peace Corps volunteers are putting their purpose, passion, and skills to work with welcoming host communities, growing, teaching, learning, and making change. Welcome, Terrence. Thanks for being here today. Thank so you for having me. Saul Hernandez is a career foreign service officer with over 18 years of experience at the U.S. Department of State. He is a diplomat in residence for the Southern Region, recruiting diverse talent for career and student program opportunities with the U.S. Department of State. Saul was previously the director for the Outreach and Communications Unit and the Public Diplomacy Incubator Unit in the Office of Policy Planning and Resources for the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. Welcome, Saul. Thank you for having me. Sabrina Miller is the, the Senior Vice President with Pinnacle Financial Partners, Commercial Banking Team in Nashville, responsible for providing service and advice to business and private banking clients. Prior to relocating in Nashville from New York, she spent eight years on Wall Street, focusing on foreign exchange markets, and was a relationship manager for relationship manager, foreign exchange specialist at Bloomberg LP. 
Originally from Brazil, Sabrina moved to the United States at age 17 when she was recruited to the University of Mississippi on an NCAA Division I tennis scholarship. Welcome, Sabrina. Thank you for having me. Rachel Bowen Pittman is the executive director of UNA USA, a component of the United Nations Foundation. She leads a grassroots advocacy movement of more than 20,000 Americans and 225 chapters who are dedicated to supporting the work of the United Nations in their communities on campuses and on Capitol Hill. She guides the UNA USA's strategic work and key partnerships, directs the UNA USA Fellowship Program, oversees membership expansion, and spearheads important advocacy initiatives to help the United States advance the far-reaching goals of the UN. Welcome, Rachel. Good day, everyone. Good to be here. So what we've decided to do is that I will pose some questions directly to one of our panelists. And after they have an opportunity to speak um, on this question, and then if there are other panelists who would like to add additional comments, please feel free to do so. So let's get started. Also, I should note that if you have questions, please be putting them in the chat so that we can be monitoring things that are occurring to you as you're hearing our panelists respond to the questions. So Sabrina, the transition between school and work can be a complex moment. What suggestions can you give to those just starting their careers or those now in higher education who would like to pursue a job like yours? Thank you, Gretchen. Um, I'm a believer that we have to be open to begin our careers in positions that may not at first seem like your dream job. So what I mean by that is that you can gain experience from different skill sets along the way that at first you did not know were some of your strengths. You know, building a career is not a sprint, a sprint, but more of a marathon. So you really need to focus on achieving milestones along the way that will allow you to build on the experience that you may need to achieve that dream job you know, down the road. So um, also I think that as you begin your career, I recommend um, intentionally networking. And what I mean by that is actually building strong connections within the organization that you're working for and really observing, you know, the successful traits that colleagues and leadership have that you can also implement on your own. Thank you very much. Those were really, I think, relevant and important questions, our answers and, and comments. I really think too that the notion of pairing that the skill sets that you have to learn and also not being so quick to say no to opportunities that are presented is, is a wonderful combination for global work. So Terrence, can you share with us a little bit of your thinking on um, questions around how colleges and universities are preparing professionals to uh, with skills 
to fulfill existing jobs. This is um, directly in line with uh, Sabrina's uh, comments just, just previously. However, as jobs change, and we may pursue careers along our lives, what kind of skills are we really talking about here? How can we learn and develop to enter a career like yours or uh, also like other NGO organizations that you have worked with through your career uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer? Uh, thank you, Gretchen. Um, I think the key word here uh, is flexibility. Being able to, to navigate multiple spaces uh, and, and again, being open and receptive to opportunities that may come your way. Uh, I tell people in, in my position who are thinking about Peace Corps service to um, the, the, the overall driving force in being a Peace Corps volunteer is the desire to be of service and the mm -hmm. desire to assist others. And when they go to our website at peacecorps.gov and look at the list of opportunities we have, they may see something that resonates with them that may not necessarily uh, connect with their, uh, their major of study. So, so uh, I would say for me, uh, telling young people to be open and be flexible uh, to certain opportunities. Uh, exactly um, uh, mastering uh, the internet, social media, uh, platforms like Zoom, uh, uh, the you know the basic ones that are are pretty much old hat now, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, but there are also new technologies coming out. Uh, we're all we're we're seeing the advent of uh, AI and Chat GPT. Uh, being able to to master uh, those platforms as well, uh, those skills are transferable. Uh, every part of everything that we're doing now is going to be interconnected through the web and through social media and multiple platforms. And so, being able to have a firm grasp of that is a skill that uh, is going to be transferable anywhere you go. So, um, that's my take on it. Thanks very much. I wonder if you can also, or any of you can speak a little bit to what we often phrase as soft skills um, with our conversations with the students on campus. I'm particularly interested in um, the experience Terrence and all of you have had around intercultural capacity um, and, and we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this in a, in a few questions from now, but I think some of what you said, Terrence, is really relevant um, that, that sort of maps right along with, with the service comments that you made. I just wonder if you can add a little to how that, that intercultural capacity has really helped you along the way. Well, for me, um... I came from the private sector working in broadcasting and, and, and the private sector and the public sector are two entirely different animals. Uh, working for the public sector, uh, we have a, I won't say a tendency, but we're very um, 
it takes a while to do things in the public sector, uh, you know, as opposed to being able to uh, pivot and do things very quickly in, in the private sector. So, so uh, I say all that to mean um, being able, again, it goes back to being flexible to, to adapt, to be willing to, uh, to adapt to change uh, is, a, is a big help. But also, um, I I talked about being of service, being of uh, 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 being able to uh, be open and willing to connect with people with different cultures. We're a global society now. It's 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 not just uh, you know I'm I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. It's not just Nashville, Tennessee uh, interacting with someone across the state we are conducting business we are assisting others all around the world and and being able to maintain those skills such as uh internet social media etc uh, along with having that openness of being willing to connect with other countries and being open and receptive to people of other countries uh the thing about the peace corps is is um I have a lot of people from other countries who come to me wanting to, to, uh, to be of assistance, to help. And unfortunately, uh, in Peace Corps, you have to be a naturalized US citizen or a US citizen. And I can't, you know, I can't uh, accept their, their offer to be of assistance. But, but that same willingness I see from other countries uh, needs to be reciprocated in the form of the U.S. trying to reach out and to be of assistance, and 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 that and that's going to go a long way in uh, people having a modicum of success in uh, in working internationally and working for organizations that offer assistance and are involved uh, on an international level. And I would just add, because um, you talked about Terrence, um, those transferable skills, it, it all depends how you position yourself. So if you are someone who's working in the community, you're, you're holding a leadership position, you're working for a local organization, those are the things that we're looking for. Um, you may not have traveled the world, um, but you may have done some things in your own local communities that can transfer to jobs um, like Terrence um, or Sowell's. And in addition to that, I mean, things like writing, if you're writing blog posts or um, you're, you're, you're doing research, I mean, th those are the types of skills um, that a lot of organizations are looking for that you can transfer to. So don't be intimidated by those job descriptions. Um, there's a, a way that you can always position yourself. I'll let Sabrina chime in and then I have a few observations as well. Yes, um, I think that communication and empathy are also, you know, extremely important um, soft skills that anybody can develop in, uh, you know, in the world, uh, communication, you know, can be done in, in so many different languages, but also by empathy, you're putting yourself in a position to really understand others. How do others operate? How do others understand how does that apply to others, you know, other culture? So by really understanding, communicating, you, you can adapt to different situations and also work 
you know, with um, different environments in different countries and different cultures. And just to, to add from the Department of State perspective, we actually have 13 dimensions that we look for uh, in uh, foreign service officers and foreign service specialists. I'll actually put it into the chat for the panelists and Pat, maybe you can share that with the attendees. But a lot of the things that we've been discussing are the types of qualities that, that we look for in a successful member of the foreign service. So uh, the ability to uh, communicate, the ability to uh, be composed under pressure, because uh, especially when you're you're traveling to a different location, you're not always going to speak the language. You might make uh, cultural mistakes and learn from them. And uh, you might face a lot of situations that, that you would be able to resolve easily in the United States and find that it's much more challenging. Things are done differently in different countries. And so you have to be able to sort of uh, uh, roll with the punches and, uh, and, and be able to uh, learn from those experiences and, and thrive and not be intimidated by them. Thanks to everyone for those great comments. I really appreciate that. So my next question is really um, one of my favorite questions, probably because my own answer would, it, it is, it just proves so humorous to me. Um, so Rachel, to what extent did you plan your career? If you were to ask yourself 10 to 15 years ago, what you'd be doing professionally now, what would you say? Well, I would hate, I, I hate to disappoint all the planners out there, um, <laughs> but I definitely did not um, plan my career the way that most people think one would plan their career. I mean, I majored in international business, but I'm working for an NGO. And even when I got my MBA, I thought that would help me transition to work for a for-profit company, but I'm still working for an NGO. I will say that the, there were the um, skill sets that were always important to me um, from things like um, having management experience, um, also focusing on international issues and international relations. So I found as I moved along my career, um, those were the things that always um, popped up as long as I was able to manage programs, manage people, um, have some type of uh, international experience or um, engage with people from all over the world, uh, I felt like I was in the right role for me. So um, kind of where you, where you started, Gretchen, you know, you can't always plan um, every step of the way of your career. I like what Sabrina said earlier. It's, it's, um, it's you know, it's not a sprint. It's going to take some time and, and you'll get there. Um, so no, I did not plan my career, but uh, looking back, um, I would tell myself to continue doing what I was doing, make sure that I took advantage of every opportunity, make sure I learned from every opportunity, which prepared me for the next role that I took. Anyone else wanna dazzle us with your journey? Well, like, Parents, I also came into public service after being in the private sector, and um, and to the point that uh, Terrence made earlier, working in the public and the private sector is very different. Uh, and uh, one of the things that sort of shocked me when I started out um, as a new foreign service officer was my uh, my paycheck 
after uh, all the deductions were taken out from my uh, retirement and, and everything else. And I thought, gosh, uh, I was making a lot more money in the private sector, but I had come from uh, an IT consulting background uh, where the motivating factor was how many billable hours you could produce for your manager or for your partner. And I really reached a point where that wasn't uh, motivating me anymore. Whereas the opportunity to actually to uh, work and represent my country as a diplomat became much more compelling. And of course, for me, the, the salary worked out over the long run. But I think that's also something that's uh, perhaps uh, illuminating to, to others about the fact that you might make a change uh, or you might lose a job and have to start over again and, and then really use those moments to sort of uh, adjust, maybe pursue a new passion or uh, or think about priorities that might be more important to you over the course of your life. Thanks very much for that. I, I just, I always find that question, um, it, it is so, I think, thought provoking. I mean, I, I am, uh, I started out as a animal science graduate focused on, you know, dairy cows, and now to be here as an administrator at a university with a, a wonderful global career, I probably would have laughed in your face if somebody had asked me if I was doing this uh, at this age. So, so I, I think that's why I like that question so much, because I, I'm always curious to hear other people's journeys. So Saul, since you um, since you added those comments, we're going to go to you next. And and some of it you sort of started to open the door um, for this question. But the question is, what do you think were some pivotal stepping stones for you to get where you are today? And you started speaking about some of that, but I am kind of curious about leaving the IT industry sort of what was the trigger for you to think I'm going to take a total, you know, 180 here? Absolutely. So the, the, the roots for this transition actually started with my, my parents. My father was in the U.S. military when I was growing up, uh, and uh, he had the opportunity to be stationed around the world, including a deployment to Germany. Uh, and I think as a Mexican-American immigrant, he never would have dreamed that he would be able to take his wife and his young children uh, to European capitals. Uh, I think it's, it was something that, that was sort of beyond his imagination. And it was really an opportunity for me to sort of see my father putting on the uniform every day, uh, being in a NATO country at a time when uh, this, is, this is sort of giving away my age, but this was before the fall of the Berlin walls to really uh, being able to see that the, de the deployment of American forces was important to protecting Western Europe. Um, I ultimately decided that I did not want to be in the military and I went to college and, and worked in the private sector, worked with some amazing colleagues, got to do some, some really uh, fun work in Atlanta and, and in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and then, of course, in the middle of all of this, 9-11 happened, uh, the, the U.S. Um, posture worldwide changed significantly. Um, and so what I found was I was spending a lot of time reading the newspaper, uh, watching C-SPAN, and, and listening to the debates about whether we would deploy our, our uh, service members abroad and knowing my, my father had finished his service, but I had friends 
who I'd gone to high school with who joined the military. And so I felt deeply, deeply uh, passionate and connected to the questions about the U.S. role in the world. And, and uh, then it just turned out to, to the point of uh, that Sabrina made about networking. I went to a, a college event. Uh, I'd actually taken a leave of absence from one of my consulting uh, jobs, and I think I knew at the time that I was I was going to be laid off. The firm I was working for was uh, was in pretty deep trouble and was was going to go out of business. So I knew I was going to have to make a, a career transition. And then my uh, my friend mentioned that his uh, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, was a foreign service officer that she served in Moscow, that she served in Switzerland. She was now working on Central Asia issues in Washington. And I thought that's the place that I want to be. Uh, and so uh, had I not uh, network with with a friend from college, I, I probably wouldn't have uh, heard about this opportunity. So I'm glad uh, that you have created this forum so that uh, hopefully others won't make the mistake that I made because it took a lot longer for me to, to get to this point. That's fantastic. I, I th I'd like to just hang with you for just a minute and have you comment because sort of what you brought up about your childhood and, and moving around um, also sort of played itself out in now your professional career. So for our attendees who are not aware that if you are a foreign service officer, you have posts and you are moved fairly regularly. So you often have an experience of, of being another, being in a place where culture and life is very different. And so I wonder if you can comment for us a little bit about times in which cultural learning was, you know, was a very, you know, prominent part of your, you know, settling into a new place and being able to come to an understanding of how life is lived in this particular location um, and adapting to that uh, and sort of approaches that you might have adopted along the way that work particularly well for you, help to ease anxiety and stress around that, and, and ways in which that became a much easier part of your role. That's an excellent question, Gretchen. Thank you so much. And so uh, I had that, that experience of growing up in a bicultural household, and, and I think uh, that's an excellent opportunity. And I also think that uh, for any parents out there who may have learned a, a second language, uh, a second language that you can teach to your child is sort of the, the, the best gift that you can give to them. Um, and then, of course, if you are a student right now and, and you're interested in, in learning more about world cultures, a language is an excellent way to do that. Now, I want to emphasize that to become a foreign service officer uh, or to join the Peace Corps or to, to uh, become a member of one of our, our foreign affairs agencies, you do not have to speak a foreign language. And in fact, through the selection process, uh, the, the language uh, uh, ability really gets tested at the very, very end of the process after you've been selected. And that's to make the process fair and equitable to all of our candidates. Um, but to sort of circle back to your question about cultural adaptability, I think if you do have that opportunity to uh, spend some time abroad, and that could be for something that, that your university sets up, uh, there are, of course, all sorts of civic organizations, uh, including some that, that are represented here today, that give you the opportunity to connect. And sometimes you're going to go abroad, and sometimes you get that opportunity to create that cross-cultural connection in your own community. 
so I'm sure that uh, you know Sabrina felt welcomed by by uh, you know host families and other folks who were you know pressed to have a, a Brazilian tennis player on campus, uh, and so there's opportunities for you even uh, you know where you might happen to be to create those connections. Now, once you go abroad, uh, as I mentioned before you will be surprised by how many things that you think are, are uh, easy to do in the United States are much, much different and much, much more um, circuitous. For those of us who are in the Foreign Service, we get sort of a, a, an excellent way to ease that process. I actually uh, attended the Foreign Service Institute. We have a School of Language Studies. And so I went to Colombia for my first assignment and actually just had to take a, a Spanish language test that, that confirmed my fluency before going. But then I served in Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, I had never studied a Slavic language. I'd never lived in that part of the world before. Uh, and I had seven months where my job was actually to go to the Foreign Service Institute and study that language and study the culture so that when I did arrive uh, at, at my diplomatic assignment, I was able to converse with people, I could order food, I could talk to um, visa applicants and talk to contacts. Uh, and I knew at what level I could converse and at what level I would need uh, the assistance of a locally employed colleague at the embassy to help translate for me. Uh, from there, I, I went to the Republic of Georgia. When I uh, submitted my application to that assignment, this is also you know, on me. I did not know that they both had their own language and their own alphabet. Um, so that was that was quite an experience as well. Um, but one of the other things that that you realize when you when you go to these new countries uh, is there are opportunities for you to figure out how to connect with the the culture and the society where you are. And those are always uh, just wonderful ways for you to realize that for all the differences that we have, uh, there there are many many things that tie us together. And um, I think to a lot of the rest of the world, American culture and American society is still very intriguing. So even if you are, you feel like you have a lot to learn, you will find that, that most people around the world are interested in learning more about Americans. And, and quite frankly, learning that Americans come in, in all ethnicities and races and uh, you know, gender identities and sexual orientations, that's, that's very, very important as well. Thank you. Sabrina or Terrence, would you like to add anything? Um, I'll add a little bit. You know, for me, it was kind of the opposite. You know, I was coming from Brazil, uh, which people don't know is actually a third world country, um, and moving to the United States. And um, I came here for tennis. Uh, that was, you know, what brought me to the States, the full scholarship, the opportunity of getting an American um, education. And I was only 17 years old. I had never been to the U.S. I barely spoke English, um, but I, I really, you know, made myself adapt and really understand the culture, um, have a sense of belonging. And um, like Saul mentioned, you know, people are friendly. They're welcoming. They're intrigued. They want to know more about you. They want to help you out. Um, so, you know, I, I, I always feel like you have to, to think about now and not the future. Um, arriving on campus and thinking about having to spend four years away from my culture, my family um, in a different country was very challenging, but mm -hmm. it really was you know, step by step, semester by semester. And, um, you know, who knew that that opportunity of playing tennis in the United States would allow me to become a U.S. citizen, have a family, 
uh, married to an American and have a, you know, a job in finance. So one opportunity led to a whole life change um, career that I would have never had if I had stayed in Brazil. That's fantastic. I think I'm, I'm going back to what you said, so about that language uh, acquisition is one of the greatest gifts a parent can give to their children. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. However, as a mother of twin boys married to a German man uh, who speaks only German to our twin boys, now they use that against me because my German is not very good. So when they don't want me to know what they're saying, they immediately shift languages. So be careful what you wish for, I suspect. Yes, it okay. can be used against you sometimes, but uh, <laughs> but hopefully not not all the time. No, no, definitely not. Okay, so um, I want to shift gears a little bit now and um, and have and have a discussion around how do you sort of enter in um, to potential career pathways as a means of exploration. And um, coming from a university where we really um, encourage our students to do experiential learning, to do field research with our faculty, uh, and also to um, think about factoring in an internship experience while they're studying and pursuing a degree. Um, I'm always quick to say to our students that um, internships are often a really great way for you to determine what you don't want to do with your career as much as they are about identifying a pathway that you do want to pursue. And right on cue, Rachel, you've joined us back. Um, so I want to direct this question first to you, Rachel, and then I know that um, the other panelists, you have your, either your organizations are also offering internships, but you have the pulse on on where some of those opportunities are sitting. But, but can you just tell us, Rachel, a little bit about internships that you're aware of and sort of how students should consider positioning themselves? Because I would imagine they're quite competitive. Yes, absolutely. So let me just start with um, United Nations Association, the UN Foundation, which where we're housed. Um, so we have internships here at, every spring, summer, and fall. Um, and uh, within the UN Foundation, we cover a lot of different issues that support the work of the United Nations. So internships um, can fall anywhere from working on marketing to accounting to policy. I mean, people don't sometimes realize that um, there are opportunities at every level of the organization, every division within the organization um, where you can get an internship and uh, learn different skill sets, uh, which is very important because when you, when I wanna say when you intern, it's the best opportunity even though you may have an internship in the accounting department, it's the best opportunity to do outreach and networking to individuals within the entire organization. So you have an opportunity to learn more about their career. Um, and so uh, obviously internships are available for people who are undergrad or in our graduate level. So I would just say that, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the, the internship where you are 
changing the world. It's just um, giving you an opportunity to get your foot in the door and to network. So think about that as you do internships. There are a lot of different um, uh, boards or you know um, LinkedIn where you can find those different internships opportunities outside of your university. Um, and I've come from the professional membership organization um, background. So there is an association for every single career and industry out there. So I would seek out um, specific organizations that kind of will take you in the direction of, of um, issues that you are interested in. I definitely want to um, turn it over to Saul because I'm sure that um, there are internship opportunities that could connect people with either the State Department or um, even with the United Nations. And so before I do that, I do want to mention another thing. Uh, UNA USA, we just got a grant to provide um, um, stipends to individuals from underserved communities that got an unpaid internship at the United mm -hmm. Nations. So this will help them with their living expenses if they get an internship at the United Nations. Um, and things are moving forward with other organizations where there are a lot of paid internships out there, which I think it is important for equity reasons. And that's why I'm so excited we got this grant so that we can help those that may not have the opportunity to intern because they don't have the funding. So Saul, tell me about the internships that you guys have with the State Department. Fantastic. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for, for being this up. I'm actually going to post on the um, webinar chat links to two websites. The first one is careers.state.gov, where uh, everyone can look at our uh, internship opportunities, our graduate fellowships, and our career opportunities. And there's a second website called studyabroad.state.gov. So I'll start first by providing a quick summary of the internship opportunities. Congress did provide funding for the Department of State to provide uh, paid internships. Most of our internships in the past were unpaid, so we're very excited about that. Uh, we offer 10-week in-person internships in the spring, summer, and fall. The application cycle for these is generally about eight months ahead of, of when you're actually going to do your internship. And the reason for that is that all of our interns need a security clearance. So you would be applying to the internship, and then after your preliminary selection, you would submit some paperwork to uh, get your clearance and then be able to participate in your internship. Um, we also offer something called the Virtual Student Federal Service Internship. Now, this is an unpaid internship, but what's exciting about that is that, one, it is um, a part-time internship. So you're not going to have to, uh, you know, give up your life for 10 weeks to, and by the way, our paid internships not only provide pay, but they also will fly you to your destination, whether that's uh, domestic or abroad, and they'll also provide housing for you. Um, as you can imagine, these are going to be very, very competitive internships. Uh, the Virtual Student Federal Service allows you to do a part-time internship so that you can be taking classes, you can be doing your work study, you can be doing your activities, and then add an internship on the side, essentially. No more than 10 hours per week. I have actually three uh, virtual interns working with me this uh, this academic year, and probably their time commitment is actually significantly lower than that. You can apply to uh, at least three 
projects and they might be with the Department of State or they might be with other federal agencies. So we've had dozens of federal agencies participate in this program. It's an excellent opportunity for you to develop some experience and put things on your resume for working with a federal agency. Uh, and we're finding that uh, as new colleagues start joining us at the Department of State, we do surveys to determine what their previous experience was. And about 3% of these new hires had some experience as a virtual student federal service intern, either with the department or somewhere else. But Rachel, to the second point that you made, uh, we also provide uh, opportunities for people to develop their own intern or study abroad proposal and then get funding through the Department of State uh, to participate. So if you're a Pell Grant student like me, we offer something called the Gilman Scholarship. It offers about 3,000 uh, scholarships, totaling up to about $5,000. So if, if uh, University of Tennessee Knoxville or the University of Mississippi or another entity says, we've got this opportunity, it's going to cost you, you know, it's just going to cost you $2,000 and it'll be fantastic. And you say, where am I going to come up with $2,000? Uh, if you're a Pell Grant recipient, you can apply and, and get that funded. If you are a the child of an active uh, duty service member, you can also apply for the Gilman McCain Scholarship. Our studyabroad.state.gov website has many, many other opportunities that you can apply to. There are uh, programs like the Born Award. If you want to study a foreign language and you don't have the experience, there are 14 critical languages that we've desi designated within the Department of State, and you can get a scholarship for an immersive experience uh, and to develop those skills. So uh, again, this is one of those opportunities that I wish that, that I had known about when I was an undergraduate. I, I came into all of this as a professional. Um, so please feel free to visit both of those websites and learn more. And of course, uh, I think on my frame, you can also see my email address, dirsouthstate.gov, and I'm also happy to talk to you about these opportunities. Thanks very much. I just want to, before we leave um, this topical area, we did get a question in the chat um, wondering about the opportunity to participate. The question reads, is there an opportunity to participate as a civilian uh, in the UN or US Department of State? And it looks as though this attendee is also perhaps currently a Fulbright uh, specialist ambassador. Um, because I was going to mention the Fulbright program too before we leave this topic. But I wonder um, if either of you have any um, thoughts about, uh, I also was thinking too about the opportunity, if I'm a mid-career professional thinking about, you know, shifting my, my uh, career path, are there ways in which I can um, take advantage of some of these programs? Yeah, in addition to what you said, you'll talk about more the fellowship programs. I put into the chat UN Volunteers Program. Um, this is another uh, opportunity for those that are either you know student right out of college or mid-career um, to be able to volunteer with the UN. And it's kind of to me when I learn more about it, I felt like it's an internship. I mean, you're you're. Um, giving your expertise, you can go out in the field um, as a UN volunteer, but you're working. So uh, that is a great program for those that um, may want to do that and have the availability to do it. Absolutely. And uh, I would also add that uh, most states and a lot of uh, major municipalities will have something called the Council for International Visitors. 
So the Department of State offers something called the International Visitor Leadership Program um, that hosts, uh, they, these might be journalists, these might be academics, these might be mayors who come and do exchange programs in the United States. And we actually rely on a lot of volunteer citizen ambassadors, uh, actually, who sign up through the, the Council for International Visitors. And then as these programs are, uh, are getting scheduled through our colleagues in Washington to go to different councils actually help set up meetings with the mayor or the town council or uh, whatever uh, civic organization we, we want to get them exposed to because it's very important for us when we have foreign visitors participating in a department of state program that they get a view not just of uh, Washington DC when they arrive but to, to, to really be able to, to see uh, the, the different experiences that you get when we travel as we say outside of the Beltway. So those are excellent opportunities. Of course, the World Affairs Council is a great uh, way for you to get connected to the foreign affairs community. Uh, and uh, Global Ties is also an organization that's also heavily involved in, in these, uh, these initiatives. As well as becoming a member of the United Nations Association of the USA. <laughs> My little plug for the day. <laughs> Well, I just want to add a couple of things. So I referenced the Fulbright program. Um, students are eligible to apply for a Fulbright Scholar opportunity um, where you would leave your home institution to go off and do some research. Uh, it is a competitive program, um, but your university um, should have support resources for you to both help you prepare your application materials, but prepare you for your interview process as well. Um, and, and also faculty um, and professionals are eligible for Fulbright awards um, and they're usually shorter in duration um, so that you can go and bring your expertise to collaborate in another uh, country as well. And I also want to add to these resources um, really do some research on your local Rotary chapter, Rotary International chapter. Um, oftentimes you can, so this is specific to Charles's question about how do I get involved as, as a civilian? Um, because the Rotary will um, procure grants into their local chapters from the headquarters of the Rotary International. And then those volunteers will go out to a place to conduct a project. And that's a wonderful way of gaining some field experience. But also the Rotary is offering scholarships for students who are looking to study abroad. And so that's a nice uh, complimentary uh, resource if you've gotten scholarships from your university or another organization to then go to your local community. And um, usually they invite you for a lunch and want you to just share a little bit about your experience after you've returned back. Um, and, and they have um, you know, comprehensive scholarships for you to take advantage of. So thanks for all of that information. I, I hope all of you will spend a little time um, researching the, the websites that have been provided in the chat. Okay, so um, we're going to tread into now an area that is really important, often, um, not often enough talked about. Um, and that is the, the whole sort of um, balance around work-life obligations 
Um, and so I'm, I'm going to start so with you and ask you to just share a little bit um, about this. And I think for every panelist with us today, I think you probably share in, in my thought that the work that we're doing and the connection that we have to other people, it becomes a part of who you are. It becomes almost a necessary part for you to thrive. And therefore, I find that it's really difficult to, to find a balance. In fact, once I became a mother, I stopped using the word balance and I just used the word integration because I constantly trying to find myself integrating my two worlds. Um, and so I wonder if you can, uh, you know, talk a little bit about that to sort of help the attendees come to a deeper sense of, of what this looks like and how to navigate it. Absolutely. One of the things that I tell people who are interested in becoming a foreign service officer like me is that when you are posted abroad, the best way to think about your job is that you are on duty 24 seven. So you will have uh, often a demanding schedule at the US embassy. And the moment that you walk outside the door, uh, especially in certain parts of the world, everyone will know that you are uh, an American with the U.S. Embassy. And so that uh, that means that if someone cuts you off in traffic, uh, you have to be careful. Of, you have to be careful about what you post on social media. Um, there are actual guidelines for, uh, for uh, me as a federal employee and Terrence and other federal employees about, uh, you know, how we can express our political opinions uh, through something known as the Hatch Act, for example. So, um, you know, both for the way that you want to express yourself and, and for the demands that you have on your time, I think it is very important for people to recognize that. Uh, I'll give you sort of one example. My last overseas assignment was in Lima, Peru. It was a wonderful uh, city, Peru is a wonderful country. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, but one of the reasons it's so beautiful is because of the Andes Mountains. And of course, that means that you have incredible seismic activity happening all the time. Uh, and so I remember uh, being woken up in the middle of the night with an earthquake that, you know, shook for about five seconds and then it was 10 seconds and 20 seconds. And you start wondering, okay, is this, is this a very, very big earthquake uh, that's, that's going to cause severe damage? Um, and I remember this also happened once when my wife and I were, were on vacation in a, in a beach town. And these things always seem to happen around two o'clock in the morning when, when, when it's the most disconcerting uh, and, and people are, are trying to sleep. And you switch on the TV, you realize that people uh, on the uh, TV station are also nervous and panicking and watching uh, the, the lights in the studio uh, move around and they're trying to figure out what, what's going on. Uh, and when most people would say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be watching the news and see what's, what's coming next, it was my job to say, okay, let's figure out what's going on. So I, I pulled up the, the U.S. Geological Survey uh, website to try to figure out where, where this was going on. I was sending messages to my supervisor. I was sending messages to the ambassador's deputy to determine whether we were going to have an accountability drill. Uh, what type of information we're going to be sending out to American citizens and figuring out if there were casualties uh, that we would either need to send out consular officers to, to provide response to. Um, and we had another situation in 2017 where there was uh, mass flooding that was, that was coming through uh, Peru caused by El Nino, and it was knocking out roads, 
bridges, um, we had some concerns that the water supply might uh, might be cut off to Lima. And people were actually, in some cases, uh, getting buckets of, of water outside the fountain across the street from the uh, presidential palace. So it was a very frightening time. Uh, and that was a moment when uh, we actually realized that, uh, that the U.S. military was going to help uh, provide response. USAID was going to help uh, provide a response. And I, I can't tell you how many uh, days there were when, uh, you know, I, I knew this was going to be a 16-hour day uh, because guess what? First of all, uh, the, this, this is important work. This is why we signed up uh, to do this job uh, and we have to get the work done. But also it potentially affects our friends, our neighbors uh, who are going to be looking and asking what is the U.S. doing now? Uh, whenever the crisis is over and whenever, uh, you know, you, you get a chance to catch your breath, then it is important to recharge your batteries. And, and uh, fortunately, the department does have very, very um, good leave programs set up. Um, and as federal employees, we also have access to a lot of uh, other great benefits. So the Family Medical Leave Act, uh, we've got uh, paid maternity and paternity leave benefits that the the private sector doesn't necessarily offer and then for those of us who are in the foreign service we accumulate uh, something called uh, home leave so for every month that we're deployed overseas separate from our sick leave bank separate from our annual leave bank we get uh, a day when we can basically just uh, be in the united states be with family or be on vacation and uh, and and just sort of recharge our batteries. But uh, I, I think there's been all sorts of writing about, you know, how work can be very, very pervasive and it is a challenge. Um, and uh, I, I always encourage people that uh, that in order for you to be an effective colleague and employee, you also have to be able to take care of yourself and your loved ones. Thank you very much. Terrence, I, I wonder if you can also, um, you know, shed a little light on this area for us because as a Peace Corps volunteer, you're sort of living at your job. Um, and so, you know, much the same as a foreign service officer, it's it's there, it's around you all the time. But I, after sort of sharing your thoughts on that, can you segue into then what does a typical day look like um, with this type of career choice? I mean, I understand there's a lot of nuance based on where you are posted and for what reason your is on the post, but but just sort of talk us through that. You know, one of the things that that uh, I I deal with in my job, and, and it's so funny, my my uh, my supervisor, who's based in Atlanta, she always says to me, uh, don't forget to take some time to recharge your batteries. And uh, for Saul to say what he said, it 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 uh, it it's something that I have to uh, I have to keep in mind because I'm sorry, excuse me, one moment. I'm sorry, that was my other cell phone. I apologize, but um, uh, I, I'm I'm used to to uh, after coming working on on the uh, the private sector, I'm used to trying to get things done, and I'm always looking for opportunities to network, and I'm always trying to attend things and and uh, uh, promote the Peace Corps. 
And uh, um, Saul is absolutely right. Being able to take time and just, you know, just sort of take a breath and, you know, look at the world around you and sort of reassess your bearings and all of that is is so vitally important. For what I do, um, my home is in Memphis, Tennessee, and I have to work out of Nashville. So I kind of have a hybrid schedule where I'm in middle Tennessee uh, for like four days out of the week. And then I work my way back to West Tennessee where my home is. And uh, I do work there. Um, um, it can, it can get, it can get a little stressful because, uh, here, here in Tennessee, they hadn't had a Peace Corps recruiter, uh, in three years. So, uh, when I came on board in December of last year, uh, and after going through my training, I had to hit the ground running because our primary, uh, I, our primary targets aren't necessarily schools, but that's the biggest opportunity to make an impact in trying to do, uh, trying to get Peace Corps recruiters. So I'm having to crisscross the state. And the thing about Tennessee, Tennessee is a very long state. It's about 500 miles long. So yesterday I was in Johnson City, which was up by uh, Virginia. And then I have to drive all the way back across the state to, uh, to Memphis and surrounding areas and try to reach schools there. So um, for me, uh, pretty much my day is, is looking for opportunities to promote the Peace Corps. Uh, I specifically like to target and what I felt was ignored in my state was uh, Tennessee has a lot of religious-based colleges and universities uh, that are supported by, by certain denominations and carry certain uh, religious tenets. And that's a very, uh, in, in, in my opinion, a very attractive and fertile uh, ground for recruitment because a lot of students who attend these schools uh, may have done mission work with their church. And that's a very valuable uh, foreign experience and uh, things that will translate well, not only into the Peace Corps, but into other uh, foreign service entities within the federal government. So um, that's that's pretty much what I do. I, I look for any and every opportunity to promote the Peace Corps and I have to do a lot of driving to do it, but I don't mind because I believe in the tenets of the Corps. Uh, I believe in the opportunities it will provide. It is a volunteer service agency, but uh, we give fairly attractive benefits along the way, including an opportunity to work in the federal government. Uh, through entities like the Department of State, uh, through entities like FEMA. Uh, so, so giving those options to young people and telling them or letting them know if they invest in themselves now through service, volunteer service in, in a foreign country, uh, the benefits will pay off. Uh, one of the things that I always tell them is, look, here's an opportunity for you to get rid of a lot of that uh, college debt you amass through loans. Uh, uh, serving in the Peace Corps will give them an opportunity to uh, have some, if not all of their uh, college debt forgiven through uh, public service loan forgiveness. So it's things like that, that that I'm constantly trying to promote. And it's not just, it's not just college students, but um, we also have, uh, we also have a, 
a sector in the Peace Corps called Peace Corps Response, where retirees, where um, people who are considering taking a sabbatical can, uh, can take part in uh, serving in a foreign country for a year. And so I'm looking at opportunities with uh, uh, AARP and uh, retirement organizations and senior citizens and, 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 and just looking and uh, keeping my ear on the ground for opportunities to promote the Peace Corps with people who want to be of service. And um, that's basically that's basically what I'm doing here in Tennessee. And you're right; it it it, it never stops. I'm I'm always on. If I if I meet someone who I think would be a good candidate for uh, volunteer work in the Peace Corps, I am quick to whip out my card and ask them have they considered Peace Corps service and and uh, tell them the benefits and direct them to our website. So yes, I'm 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 on 24/7 when you think about it. Thank you very much. And I wonder if we can pick up a quick question from the chat. Terrence, someone asked if um, the question is, can we choose where we go? And that's a little off topic of where we are, but I figured since you had the floor, maybe you could respond to that. What I what I let everybody know and what's and, and what I recommend that they do is to be flexible and think about the region that they will want to serve in. We serve uh, in uh, South America, uh, uh, Asia, uh, Eastern Europe, Africa, which is our largest, uh, which is our largest or contains our most opportunities. But I let them know to pick about three countries, pick the country that they would want to go, but also have two additional countries that uh, they would be willing to work in. Uh, it would make it easier for them to be placed in the Peace Corps in service somewhere that may not necessarily be their original choice, but they would be willing to work in other places. So um, what I recommend everyone to do is to just a uh, quick plug here, go to peacecorps.gov, look under opportunities and see the countries that we're currently serving now and the different sectors that we have available in each of those countries, whether it's education, health, uh, business development, working with youth. Um, but uh, that's the main thing to um, come with multiple choices so um, you'll be able to serve. Excellent, thanks so much. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna stay focused on the questions coming from our attendees and thank you all so much for posting these questions. I'm, I'm really happy to see um, the things that you're thinking about, but we actually have a good cluster of questions that really sort of um, tap into entry into different career paths, decision-making at that sort of early part. So I'd like to start with Sabrina. Sabrina, we had a, a participant ask um, other career opportunities in international business that you want to highlight today? Um, I think when you think of the topic international business, that can be quite diverse. So, um, you know, right off college, um, as I was trying to establish my career, uh, one of my primary obstacles um, was actually getting a visa, a working visa to stay in the United States and, and work in the U.S. So I really leveraged my language. My native language is Portuguese. Um, and that's what got me into um, foreign exchange markets. So what, what, the, what does that mean is you can, um, 
you can work in the FX market with, uh, you know, trading um, analysis that can be done on an international bank, that can be done with a hedge fund. So um, in international business doesn't mean just like import, export, you know, selling goods across uh, different countries. It can be done in the finance market, um, you know, by, by trading foreign exchange. So that's kind of how I um, got my career path uh, started within international business. Excellent. Thanks very much. Rachel, someone asked a question about how to get a job at the UN. Where are those jobs? New York, elsewhere. Can you speak a little to that, please? Um, yes. So um, the United Nations, the, the jobs, and I'm going to talk more, let's say internships, but um, the UN is all over the world. So there are jobs at UN headquarters in New York, in Geneva, but then they're also out in the field. Um, and the UN also has a lot of different agencies within their system, um, from working with refugees to working with um, women and girls. Um, so there are a lot of different agencies within the UN system that are all over the over the world. So if you just Google uh, United Nations careers, um, you would be able to see um, what's available. And kind of like the U.S. government, the process takes some time. There, there is an application process um, in addition to you know, looking at a specific job. And one thing that I learned recently that I was surprised by, when um, people put, they ask the U.N. ask, um, what languages do you speak? Um, people forget to mark English as a language. You know, Americans will think, oh, they're thinking about Spanish or French or Portuguese, but you also need to write down English um, because that can hurt you on your application. Great, thank you so much. And going back into the foreign service world, I'm gonna bring together two questions from two different participants. One question asks, what is an ideal year look like after undergrad? Um, I'm assuming this means, you know, a gap year um, for additional tooling or um, exposure experience, et cetera. And then the second question is um, to talk to us about the process of applying to be a foreign service officer, what that looks like, and why does it take so long? Well, I'll, uh, I'll start with the easy question first. Um, really, uh, a gap year uh, is an excellent opportunity to, to explore, to learn a new language, uh, to look at one of the exchange programs that we have. The Department of State, if you visit our careers.state.gov website, uh, also has several programs for recent graduates. Um, and uh, to sort of touch on Sabrina's point, some of these positions might be entry level. Um, they may not be exactly what your you know, future career aspirations happen to be, but these are designed for people who maybe you know, have, have a degree, but not a lot of uh, experience yet in foreign affairs. And this, this job is going to give you that opportunity to, to get that experience. Um, that said, we are also hiring very, very aggressively 
we have had uh, periods when our, our hiring has gone through uh, peaks and valleys and we're at a peak right now. So uh, in the uh, last year, I think we hired more employees than in the past 10 years and we're on track to continue to hire aggressively. And, and those are positions in what's called the civil service where people are going to be working domestically and in the foreign service for, uh, for people like me. Um, so I would encourage you again to, to visit our website. For some of our positions, um, you will go through a, a, a very separate process to, uh, that I can explain briefly. But for many of our positions, they're also advertised on a website called usajobs.gov. And I would say that the federal government uh, right now is, is going through a, a big push also to get a lot of new talent into the system. So if you actually visit the usajobs.gov website, you can learn about opportunities with the Department of State, but the rest of the, of the federal government as well. And one of the things that, that is really critical here is if you uh, become a federal employee at another government agency, you can apply to positions that are not open to the general public. So to kind of go back again to that point of, okay, maybe that, that first job that you have is not where you want to be, but you want to build a path to that, uh, keep yourself open to maybe opportunities where you say, okay, maybe I'll be doing this job for you know, one, two, three years while I pursue a, a long-term uh, path to, to get to the Foreign Service. So the steps to becoming a Foreign Service officer uh, can be lengthy. We do say that it can take about 18 to 24 months for you to make it through the process. The requirements are actually pretty straightforward. You only have to be a US citizen, 20 years of age uh, and up to 59 years of age at the time that you apply and 21 years of age or uh, no more than 60 years of age when you raise your right hand and, and uh, take the oath to defend the US Constitution. Now, if you are a US uh, military veteran, then you can even apply for an exemption to that. In career, I'm, uh, you know, I'm too old to become a foreign service officer. That is not true. Uh, I've had colleagues who were 60 years old who were in my orientation class and were thrilled to, to be able to still provide public service. Um, but the reason that I would say that the process takes a while is that um, the, the tests and the personal narratives and the oral assessment are a fairly rigorous uh, process. They take several months uh, and people do get nervous, uh, either through the test taking process or through the actual structured assessment that we put together. Most of us have had to go through the process more than once. Uh, and so this is also a testimony to uh, persevere. You will always get a score uh, when you apply to uh, a position in the Foreign Service. So you will know how you did on the different components of your application. And if you're a good test taker, uh, you can see where you can tweak your, your uh, performance a little bit. And if you're not a great test taker, you will know exactly what your score was and how to improve. Um, the second part of this that, that will be relevant whenever you apply to most uh, federal positions that require clearance is that you're going to have to submit paperwork uh, that will provide information about you, your family members, where you live, where you've worked. None of that process is going to get started until you have uh, completed all your information, crossed the T's, dotted the I's, and submitted it. Um, so, uh, you know, working for a federal bureaucracy sometimes is an exercise in being able to work your way through these, these processes. Uh, and, uh, and then of course, at that point, uh, investigators take, take their, their uh, do their due diligence and it may, be, may take longer for some other, uh, more time for some candidates. 
as compared to others. But uh, it is it is a worthwhile opportunity and worth uh, persevering if you don't make it through the first time. Thanks very much. So we're going to turn now to our last topic with our time together today. Um, and to me, this is a really important topic, I think, for our attendees. And I can say from my vantage point at the university, this is something that we need to spend more time with our students and our faculty um, thinking about. And that is the power of networking, cultivating a professional network, um, and also the idea of mentorship. So I, I'd like to have Sabrina sort of start, kick things off. Um, I'm sure all of you probably have a lot to say about how your networks have served you throughout the life of your career. But, but Sabrina, what would you say to us about um, you know, establishing a network, have you had or have you identified um, in your career a mentor and, and how did that sort of provide you an advantage um, and a good resource? Yes, um, I, I definitely, you know, recommend uh, establishing a relationship with a mentor and a mentor does not have to be someone on a leadership position. Um, you know, it has to be someone that you, both of you are showing trust and respect um, with each other. And, um, and it kind of aligns with what I mentioned early, you know, regarding intentioning, intention, intentional networking. So you can't, you um, as a student or a graduate or an early uh, professional, you can identify um, someone that you think would be the best mentor for you. And, um, you know, the, and the main purpose of, you know, mentoring is to really tap into their expertise, their experience, and their knowledge, um, you know, as a seasonal professional. And so both of you have to be 100% in, you have to um, set up goals. And, you know, people talk about the three A's, which is availability, active listening, and analysis. Um, so definitely recommend, you know, intentional networking and establishing a mentorship uh, connection with someone that you think you can gain from. Thank you. Others? Well, you've heard, we've all heard the phrase, it takes a village. And I would say that it also takes a village, at least for me, of mentors. Um, so for me, I had a boss who I hated. I did not like working for her. She was so hard on me. Um, but after we were separated for many years, I came back to her and she has been the best mentor ever because I didn't realize back then looking out for me. Um, and I use her as a mentor, but then I have a mentor within the UN Foundation, uh, a colleague that I talked to about working here and how to um, improve my work. So for me, you know, it, it, it takes a village. I have different people that I, I go to that know me really well, that support, that supports my work and my advancement. Uh, and I would also say, because I come from the the professional membership organization uh, is my background. I worked for several 
professional membership organization, I strongly encourage uh, individuals to join an organization. Um, I was a part of the uh, American Society for Association Executives, um, and there are, you know, associations for lawyers and doctors and engineers, and I've, I've worked for them. So that is a wonderful network um, to connect with people, but also to find future mentors if, if those are the careers that you wish to seek. Excellent. Anyone else want to add to the comments? Can I would just add that, um, you know, we often think about the mentors who can help us along the way. And let's never forget the fact that we can be mentors to others uh, at any point in our lives. So for those of you who are in college right now, um, there are people in high school uh, and in junior high who, you know, maybe uh, are wondering whether uh, college is, is right for them or they, they may be thinking about a very, very different career path. So think about ways that you can pay it forward. So just as you're looking for folks to help you along your professional development, uh, you often have something to, to offer to others as well. And so I have a really great example to that. Um, uh, I got a career, uh, a, a new job through a former intern. Uh, that intern had recommended me for a position at a place they were now interning for. So um, you never know how your network can help you. So you can pay it forward. You, you don't have to be a, a senior executive at uh, an organization in, in order to help or support someone. And, and Gretchen, if I could, uh, if I can add something as well, I find that a lot of the college students that I come across, uh, they're very shy. There's not a lot of initiative to make new friendships and, 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 and create contacts and, and networking. Uh, if you find somebody who you kind of admire their work or you see that, uh, as, uh, as they say, they have it going on in their field of study, don't be afraid to introduce yourself and say, hey, I admire what you do. I'd like for you to, I'd like to be a mentee to you. Uh, I want to follow the same career path. Uh, don't be afraid to meet other people to, to extend yourself to others. Because even though we are in an internet society, it's still about good old fashioned shaking the hand and, and making contact with others. Eye contact goes a whole long way. Uh, uh, and, and, and a sense of self-confidence in who you are and where you want to go and who you want to be. So um, uh, don't be afraid to strike up a conversation with someone who's, who's where you are and where you, you will eventually want to be. Um, you know, a good old fashioned handshake goes a long way these days. Excellent advice. I'll add two more comments to that. One is for those attendees who are currently in a post-secondary institution, never underestimate the power of your peers in your classes. Um, to be a critical part of your network. I think all of us can probably cite people that we were in undergraduate programs with that now stand in leadership positions and organizations that are critical for the work that we are doing. And, and so I, I think that's really important. 
Plus you have the added advantage then is to much later in life to be able to go back to them and say, remember when, remember when we did this crazy stuff when we were in undergrad and, and now I need your help with this other thing that I'm working on. Um, and the other thing that I would add about networking, um, oftentimes I am a big proponent for leading early career faculty members, but also students through of physically mapping your network so that you can see what pieces are really strong in your network. And you can also then see where your gaps are so that you have a sense of where should I be, as Terrence said, making the handshake and extending myself so that I can build that piece of my network out. And that should that should be an iterative process throughout your career. You should continue to do that so that you can take stock of what are the levers that you can pull and push on um, to help you achieve either your company's or your organizational vision or your own personal vision when it's time for you to be shifting. Um, so, so never think that that is lost time. Uh, so I, yes, go right ahead. If I can add, if I can add to that, um, I believe you know um, your alumni network. Absolutely. So the university that you um, that you currently you know are graduating from or have graduated from. Um, that's a huge yes. network that you can tap in. It's something that you have in common that people really connect with and will be open um, to introduce or have a conversation. Excellent with you. point. Thank you for adding that because you're right. That's that's very important. So I'd like to take a minute to thank all of you. I know that your schedules are frenetic and I really appreciate you making the time to come and share your your thoughts, your expertise, your wisdom with us. I'd also like to thank all of our participants um, that took time away from your schedules today to join us. I hope that the information um, that was provided was useful. If you'd like to refer back to any of that information, the program will be archived and available at the Tennessee World Affairs website, uh, tnwac.org. You can find, find it there. Um, and I also want to remind everyone, um, Pat mentioned this at the beginning of our program, but the career panel that is next Wednesday at the same time around national security careers for women. Um, and it's not just for women. So we'd, we'd like all of you to consider joining this discussion. Um, and just again, a huge, a huge round of thanks to all of you. It was really a pleasure to uh, get to know you all and to, to serve on this panel with you. So thanks and thanks to Pat for bringing us all together and, and making this opportunity available. Thank you.